Welcome everybody to Big Cat Diary Uncut. It's our latest series of podcasts. It's 10 episodes. We're halfway through at the end of this one, episode five. It's the year 2003, what will be a momentous year for the Big Cat Diary brand. And it's called Kike's Story and Bella the Leopard. And it starts with a bang. The Big Cat Week logo appears briefly on the screen, fading. Cut to Cheetah racing through the long grass as I exclaim, Look at that! She's going! She's going! Look at her go! She's got the baby! She's got the baby Topi! And the mother's coming straight back! She's coming straight back! The Topi calf bleats in distress, a sound guaranteed to whip its mother's maternal instincts into a frenzy. The Cheetah picks the calf up and takes a few bounding steps towards the topi mother, charging at her, who is not intimidated in the least. She's moving into attack. There she goes, and the cheetah's coming right at us. Here she comes, here she comes, here she comes right on the car. Boy, oh boy, did you see the noise of the mother, or did you hear the noise of the mother? Did you see the look on Kike's face? By now, we're hoping... The audience are not only riveted by the pace of the action and the fact that they have just watched a cheetah leap onto my car for refuge, but they're probably chuckling at the look of wide-eyed astonishment on my face. It's one of those once-in-a-lifetime moments when the power of nature is captured in all its raw intensity. What an introduction to Big Cat Week and Kike the Cheetah. So... Big Cat Week. Well, what did that mean? Let me just tell you. Over the years, Big Cat had moved closer and closer to our initial concept, a genuine reality program filmed in the moment. It would, and did, also spawn a whole genre of siblings. We produced two series of Elephant Diaries, which I presented with Michaela Strachan. We produced a series of Big Bear Diary with myself, Saba Douglas Hamilton, and Jeff from America, who was looking at the black bears. Then there was Orangutan Diary, with Michaela and Steve, and Chimpanzee Diary, which I recorded the narration for, all of which relied on a similar formula of strong, intimate stories, focusing on the individual characters of our animal stars. The powers that B now felt that we were entertaining enough for BBC One the big time, and as part of the transition, took the decision to present the show in a different format. Instead of it being broadcast once a week for a run of six to eight weeks, it was to be stripped across a single week in a prime time slot at 7pm. You couldn't ask for a better slot. 30 minutes before the soaps for the Coronation Streets, Emmerdale's, EastEnders, Big Cat Week proved an instant success, doubling our audience from a very respectable 3 million viewers on BBC Two, which is very, very good, to 6 million on BBC One. It peaked at 7 million viewers just in the UK alone and was being shown worldwide through BBC Worldwide and Animal Planet, making it one of the most popular shows on television that week. And that was the thing. It wasn't just the ratings. It was the audience appreciation figures too, which put us right in the top bracket 
against all of the competition. People love the sense of an event, of sitting down at the same time each evening and tapping into the highs and lows of the cat's daily lives. Although it was filmed over the course of a month, or six weeks, or eight weeks even, it had the feel of live television. The safari experience brought right into your living room. Now, it was actually filmed once we started doing Big Cat Week, we cut it down, or rather the BBC cutting the budget, relying on the fact that we were that much more experienced, really knew what was needed from us, had all of the right talents, whether it was camera people, presenters, sound people, engineers, our spotters, Angie, you name it. We had it tapped. And so gradually, we were given less and less time to produce it. So around about four weeks. So that's pretty tough, because that meant at least a programme a week. There were five programmes. We went out for five days over the course of a week for Big Cat Week. And so the year 2003, I mean, can you believe it? It's 20 years ago now. And as I say, open with a bang. And that particular sequence, it was seamless. We had the ace cameraman, our cheetah cameraman, Warren, and his trusty driver, who knew exactly where to position his car, which is so vital to think ahead, figure out where the predator's going to be when it actually, if it does, grabs its prey, and have the cameraman or camerawoman right where they can record it. So Wilson, where Marley, he used to get so excited. One times they actually cut his narration into, or his <laughs> chatter on the radio, into the narration. It was... A lot of people wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about. Of course, our Swahili audience would have. But it was riveting in terms of the energy and enthusiasm. And that's what it's all about. And we also had with us Andy Hawley, a wonderful, wonderful sound person. And I tell you, that's the hardest job on a film crew or a video crew is getting good sound because normally there's people chattering, other vehicles, people stopping and starting, a lot of racket which is going to kill perfect sound. And then, of course, it's going to be introduced later back in the studios in the Natural History Unit in Bristol. And you can't always be sure that you won't get, for instance, I've said it before, a lion yours, yawns, and suddenly you've got the sound of a lion roaring accompanying it. So much better. And that was always our brief. Record as much of the commentary, 90%, maybe 95%, in the field at the town time. And that's what gives you the immediacy of what is basically a live event. It's just you don't need the result on the evening it's actually recorded. So the proof in the pudding was that particular sequence. So I had Toby Strong a brilliant DV, digital video cameraman, with me. I mean, he uses the big rigs now too. But then he was shooting one of those small handheld cameras, perfect for filming inside the vehicle with the presenter. Each of the presenters, Saba, Simon, myself, had a DV person sitting in the seat next to us. Wonderful. We all gone on really well. But I tell you, when you saw the red light come on, when you were peeing in a bottle at the back of the car, not so good. You hoped it stayed private, that it was going to be one of those moments in program six, you know, just an inside view at the end of filming, which we would show to the team at the end of the, uh, you know, at the wrap, the wrap party. Didn't want it going out to the audience. Not that. Anyway, so the proof in the pudding, 
Jonathan Ross, top three most memorable factual moments on TV, 2003. And it was that sequence. I mean, it was seamless. Toby, Warren Samuels filmed the actual cheetah, Kike, catching the Toby calf. And then the mother charging in, her turning tail, drops the calf, runs for the nearest safety. No termite mounds, no trees. Where are you going to get away from the Toby? Well, if you're Kike, get up on the car, up on the roof. And then Johnny pops his head out, looking, his eyes, the whites of his eyes showing. And... You know, just basically almost lost for words. So an incredible moment. We didn't win, but we're in the top three. And a lot of people remembered that particular sequence. It was similar to the one when Richard North, another ace cameraman in the back of my car, when we had Zawadi, Halftail's daughter, the leopard, grab a hair right in front of the car. Richard grabbed it. He got the wildlife sequence. He then got me saying the right things. Zawadi performed perfectly. You don't always get it like that. The editors do an incredible job piecing things together, but still retaining the truth of the moment. Now, Kike, well, who was she? Who was this cheetah that was so confident that she just jumped on the roof of my car? Some people said she was Amber, Queen's daughter. And I think that was more than anything because of the fact that Queen was really the original car-chiming cheetah. She'd been orphaned. We know the story now. It was in the previous um, episode about how she was orphaned. There were five of them, five cubs. They were rescued. They were fed. They were reintroduced into the wild. And they were very, very used to vehicles. And even if it hadn't have been that beginning in their life, cheetah cubs, if their mother's used to vehicles, habituated to vehicles, not frightened of vehicles, which you hope they're not going to be, so as you can have a good look and hope that you're not impinging too much on their natural behavior. Those little cubs love to race around the cars, up on the back of the car, onto the spare wheels. So at that time, it wasn't that unexpected that there would be another cheetah who might jump on a car. But it didn't mean she was related to Amber. Now, the fact was, she was occupying the same home range that Amber had, or certainly overlapping part of it. And that's normally what female offspring do when they become independent, rather like leopards with their female offsprings, they'll overlap part of the same home range. So we don't know the exact history of Kike. We think she was probably born around 1999. And she was about four years old. They start breeding you know, three years of age, normally three to four years of age if it's a lion, three to four years of age if it's a leopard. And she had three cubs with her. They were about nine months old. And we the reason now that I'm suddenly telling the cheetah story is, is because Angie and myself got a commission from Collins to produce three books, Big Cat Diary, Lion, Leopard, Cheetah. And now we'd come to the cheetah book, the last in the sequence of three. Lion came out in 2002, Big Cat Diary, Leopard, 2003, and Big Cat Diary Cheetah would come out in 2005, two years after this particular series. The reason for the delay? Because we needed images to illustrate the story of cheetahs right across Africa and in Asia or in Iran, Afghanistan. They used to be in Afghanistan, but in Iran where they're still found. And so we were pre- had this 
assignment to produce a book on the three big cats. And I had always taken cheetahs for granted. My first love was leopards. When I first came to the Mara, not a chance. Took me six years to do the leopard's tail. I concentrated instead on the marshlands. 1982 with Brian Jackman, co-author, produced the book The Marshlands. And cheetahs, they were so visible. Striding out across the plains in daylight, they were probably, okay, not as easy to see as lions, but a lot easier back then to see than leopards. And I sort of took them for granted. They weren't as intriguing as a leopard, the mystery cat, the enigmatic, sleuthy, secretive, hunter of the dark leopard, which can be invisible even if it's used to you like half-tail, just by remaining still, camouflaged against the cover. So now suddenly... It's all about cheetahs for us, for Angie and myself. So Angie was one of our cheetah spotters and I was able to get some still images, as of course was Angie, to accompany what would ultimately be the book Big Cat Diary Cheetah. So that's why I took over cheetahs from Simon. Simon then concentrated on, um, on lions and Saba was taking on leopards. So last time, in 2002... Saba was telling the lion story. I was telling the leopard story. Simon the cheetah story. Now, me cheetahs, Simon lions, Saba leopards. And so, what about leopards? Well, Zawadi had become increasingly difficult to find. In the rains, that northern area where she ranged, Leopard Gorge, Fig Tree Ridge, and to the north, just is a blanket of grass. And less visitors up in that particular area. When I was living at Mara River Camp, outside the reserve, not too far from those key places, Fig Tree Ridge, Leopard Gorge, I'd be out every day. And so it was Halftail and Zawadi were our local leopards. They were our passion. But now less views, less visitation, less certainty of being able to find her. So in a sense, we were faced with the original dilemma when we wanted to produce Big Cat Diary in 1996. You can only do it if you can get that third cat, the leopard, the tricky one. And of course, in 96, we had Halftail with Zawadi. Now it's proving to be just exactly what we knew, tough. And if you find a leopard and they aren't with cubs, even tougher. Because a lot of the time, primarily nocturnal, lying up in a cave, if you're lucky, a view of them in a tree doing absolutely nothing, looking incredibly comfortable, just like a big cat, such as a leopard will do when it's resting. And if you're lucky, she may come down, yawn or he, stretch, just as it's getting dark and you've got to go back to camp. Well, if you remember 2002... When, half to, when Zawadi was actually with Safi, that was her 11-month-old cub, and they got pushed around and frightened by Droopy, Droopy Jaw, that male, that new male in the area who wasn't Safi's father and who was being pretty aggressive around this young female. And Zawadi stood up to him, chased him off, went parallel, side by side with him, was ready to go right face to face, teeth and all, claws out. And then having managed to just ensure Safi's safety, they disappeared. 
And when they disappeared in 2000 and we went looking for other leopards, other possibilities and hoping to find Zawadi, we came across in a beautiful area of the Mara to the east called the Talik area, the Talik River, a tributary of the Mara, always been famous for leopards. This tree-lined river tributary with these beautiful great big fig trees and African green hearts. A stunning area scenically and a perfect place for leopards, even though it's also very good for lions. So the leopards have to watch out. And during our search, we came across a female with a six-month-old cub, a young female, and they had a kill in a tree. And we thought, oh, wouldn't this be great? But we knew we had to stick with our primary story. We had to try and find Zawadi. And eventually we did. So we... We left that, but we never forgot about that leopard. And gradually, we heard more and more about that leopard and that cub. And they would become Bella and Olive. Bella the mother, Olive the daughter. So that was 2000. Now it's 2003. Olive is independent of Bella and Saba is on the case. So she actually named that female Bella. And... Bella had two three-month-old cubs, gold, because she was used to vehicles, lots of vehicles and camps around the Talic River. She was habituated to vehicles. She was perfectly comfortable being watched, and she had two cubs. The only problem for Saba and the Leopard crew was that that was a 45-minute to one-hour drive from Governor's Camp across to the east. So early starts, they were getting up at 4, 4.30, they were on the road at 5, because you want to be... It's just as it is with stills photography. You want to be where your subject of interest is before the sun comes up. So you're driving in the dark. You've got lots of spotters, people who know their way around. Angie was on it as well at times. And um, so early starts for them. And sometimes, of course, the cubs would be tucked away. Bella would have gone off hunting or gone to drink down at a pool somewhere. And there might be very little happening. But at times there was plenty of action. So what about the marshlands? Well, as we've said, we always rely, they're our local pride. They're the lands that myself and Angie and other people have been watching way back to 1977. And Governor's Camp, even before that, the camp first started in 1972, the first and oldest camp in the Mara back in the time where there was literally less than half a dozen camps or lodges in the whole of the Mara. What a difference it is now. So Simon we meet ecstatic. He's got 29 lions. Those young cubs born to Mama Lugga and Waitai and a little while later to Kali, Bibi's mother, in 2002 are now a year old. And guess what? Even better. So we've got 10 cubs of about a year old. Then we've got those two females that caused such havoc for Mama Lugga when they came and tried to play with her cubs. She did everything possible to dissuade them. She then went off hunting, came back. The cubs had joined up quite, you know, without it being an intrusive action by Waitai with her three little cubs had come across those four. They then, when she moved off, joined her. And Mama Lugga came back and it was as if she had never had cubs. She was distressed. She searched for them. And then it was just as if infanticide had happened. And the next thing she was mating with her father, the blonde Marsh Pride male, the blonde Topi Pride male, who had come in and chased Scar away. 
So those 10 cubs, a year old, they've survived. Then we've got the two young females that caused the trouble. They are now a year and seven months and a year and nine months old. They were the ones that hung around with Nusu Nusu, one of our six lionesses from the Buffalo debacle of 1998 that had survived and now had cubs. So things are just looking amazing, but there's a difference. Because Simba, who was the younger of the two blonde males, the biggest one with the blonde mane, Blondie we called him, had been killed by a buffalo. The pride attacked a buffalo, and I tell you, one false move, one wrong move, one lunge at the uh, buffalo, and it's stronger than you thought, and it just racks its neck round with those incredibly powerful, that bossed head of it, of the buffalo, with those downswept horns, and just bang. I mean, a big bull buffalo, Anything from three quarters of a ton. Occasionally a record would be a buffalo weighing a ton. And it's pure solid muscle. It's got a neck on it and a head on it, which is like a pile driver when they decide they go on the offensive. And Blondie had come unstuck, killed May 2003. So Simba, as Simon had called, the younger of the two Topi Plains males, is now on his own, except for a little bit of luck. In that, remember Nusu Nusu with those two young females? She also was with a year and a half old male who we called Kijana. And so he now is two and a half years old. He's looking bigger than any of the lionesses. He's beginning to develop a really nice looking mane. And he's been able to hang out with the pride, normally at two years of age, gone pushed out by the resident pride males because of competition, not wanting to end up with inbreeding within the pride. So the females become aggressive to these young males. They will have a new litter of cubs if they were his mother. And so resources, short supply, those youngsters, those young males, invariably are going to be pushed out at two to three years of age. He's two and a half. And for the moment, at least, he's back up for Simba. So we've got a crash in effect, of 16 cubs. We had the 10 cubs from Kali, Waitai, and Mamalaga, and then Notch and Split Nose. After we finished filming in the last series, they had cubs, and their cubs are now 9 to 10 months old. So there were six cubs. So the 10 cubs and these six cubs, they all survived. So they were raised as a crash, which we know is the best way for lions to be able to reproduce and raise cubs successfully. It's a group effort amongst the females, amongst the mothers. They hunt together. They ward off the threat from non-pride males who may be looking around to try and take over the pride and would kill the cubs. They're incredibly aggressive towards any intrusions like that. And so you've got this crash. But now there's another story here. Because amongst the 29 lions... We've got the two males, we've got the seven adult females, we've got the two younger females and Kijana, and then we've got those 16 cubs. And amongst them are two other cubs born to Bibi. She's five years old, she's Kali's daughter. She was slightly younger than Waitai and Mamalaga. And she's got two cubs, five years. They are um, at about, they're about eight weeks old. And there were three. One's disappeared and she's got a male 
and a female cub. But the problem for Bibi is she's not part of a crash. She's sort of out of sync with the journey of the pride at this moment in time. The other females are incredibly focused on each other and on their cubs. And Bibi has now got small cubs. She'd been isolating herself with those cubs along the Bilashaka Lugger, as a female will do. And then when she tries to integrate, to reintegrate with the pride, to introduce the cubs to the rest of the group, there's resistance. It's almost as if the females are saying, look, you know what? You chose to go out on your own. Now you've got kids. And actually resources are, you know, important for our cubs. You're not part of this particular group. But the one great thing Bibi has got going for her is she's still able to stay within her territory. So she's still got the support of Simba, who sired those cubs. And so... It's not looking good. It's a fantastic story for Simon to be able to tell, along with what is going to happen to Simba. Because just as we start filming, two nomadic males move into the area and they are looking seriously to see if they can take advantage of this one older male. Simba's about, I should think he's about eight years old at this point. So he's almost past his prime. He's not old. But he's on his own. And we will see over time in the course of Big Cat Diary how you can end up as a single male and hang into a pride or onto a pride for a while because you've got females who know you. You can stick with them and the sub-adults. You can get food and you, there's some security within the group. But at some point, you're going to find that you're up against two, three, four, five, six males who are desperate for their moment in time to take over the pride. You know, one of the things when I look back at 2003 and I see that shot of Simon in his vehicle with 29 lions, the Marsh Pride, with Simba amongst them. And it's just like, you know, just look at us. And I don't think we realised, well, we didn't at the time, but this was the Marsh Pride's finest hour. If I think of back to 1977, it's 2003 now, it's 45 years since I started watching those lines, 46 years. This was a watermark in their history. Because in general, the Marsh Pride would be a couple of males, maybe three, four to six females, maybe 10 cubs. So you look, you're talking about a good pride for the Marsh Pride, based on the area and the availability of food, the seasonality, the fact that they're a boundary pride, meant that generally 10 to 15 lions in the group was pretty much the norm. Now we've got 29. I mean, amazing. But you, when I look back at it now, I can see that the pressure was going to begin to tell. Because this is a boundary pride. The pride spends part of its time, particularly in the rainy season when the marsh is waterlogged, they move to higher ground, they move out of the reserve and they get in amongst cattle and pastoralists. And the human population and the livestock around the Mara, as it became more and more known as a tourism hotspot, as areas around the Lake Victoria area became subdivided amongst the community there, the onus on finding land for land-hungry people meant that there was an opportunity in the Mara area. The land owned by the Maasai as, in group, as a group ranch, owned communally, would become subdivided. 
And so the pressure, the influx of people, the immigration into the area was about 8% in terms of the growth rate of the human population in the area, well above the two to three norm for the um, for Kenya as a whole. So the heat was on the area from human beings and they want what lands want, real estate, large lumps of it. But also that pressure from livestock, gradually livestock intruding more and more into the reserve. And when the lands, of course, cross the boundary and go outside, they're liable to get speared or poisoned. And then there was climate change, a word that people were barely talking about back then. But we were beginning to see drier times, more unpredictable weather, longer droughts, occasionally longer periods of wet times, but in general, drier times. And gradually, with the elephant population, the vehicles breaking into the thickets, the Maasai cutting down bushes, the cover which lions so desperately need to raise their cubs was beginning to disappear. Anyway, two strong stories. Simba, what's he going to do? How's he going to face up against those two nomads? Can he keep himself out of trouble? And inevitably, there will be a change. But when? And then the fate of Bibi and those two small cubs. Well, one of the exciting things that we were to witness was the Marsh Pride. And this is the big one. You know, for visitors, everybody, and I won't say everybody wants to see action, but seeing predators in action, it gets the heart pumping. It gets the adrenaline running. Everybody wants to see a cheetah hunting. That explosive acceleration from zero to 60 to 70 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour. I mean, it's just extraordinary to watch it. You can't quite believe what you're seeing. I mean, forget Hussein Bolt in the 100 metres in the Olympics. He wouldn't even be at the 40 metre mark, probably. He'd be halfway to the finish line and the cheetah would already be just sort of rubbing its paws and saying, see, look at me, the fastest land animal on earth. But now we've got the marsh pride with this kind of number of lions, those adult lionesses. You've got Kijana hanging around with the females, sometimes Simba. And then you've got those year-olds who are beginning to get really interested in opportunities to learn how to hunt. And when I say learn, they've got the innate creep, crawl, stalk, be sleuth-like, be the predatory cat, which they're designed to be. But there's a lot of learning that goes on. And those youngsters, until they're two years old, even then, two to three years old, they're beginning to get the hang the hang of hunting prey. But initially, there's a lot of effort, a lot of uh, miss, you know, missed opportunities, a lot of getting it wrong as to what's appropriate prey or not. But this pride are buffalo killers. And Simon is there when the pride takes on a cow buffalo. She gets herself isolated. She's surrounded. Kijana, our two-and-a-half-year-old male gets in there, jumps on the back of the buffalo, and then the key to killing a buffalo, once you've managed to get it down, and in some instances it can take an hour, more, the buffalo might get away without its tail. Maybe its testicles have been chewed off at that point already. So at the back end, the non-dangerous end, big group of lions, if somebody's managing to anchor that buffalo, they will start eating it alive. It's not pretty. But that's what happens. But if they can get it down and suffocate it, because the big cats kill large prey by biting it into the throat. By that way, they can pin it to the ground, avoid the flailing legs and avoid those horns. 
you try and jump on the back and bite it into their neck, you've got the horns to cater with. So with smaller cats, a bite into the nape of the neck kills a rat, kills a rodent, but not for these big cats. Throat bite, strangle it. And with a big animal like a buffalo, if you can, the coup de grace, you bite over the nose and mouth. And that's got to be a very experienced male or probably one of the adult lionesses who's used to doing this who when they see their moment as the rest of the pride grapple with the buffalo, trying to hamstring it, pull it to the ground, jumping on its back, and then one of those lionesses, in this instance, Carly or Notch, are two most experienced females. They're 10 years old, headed towards 12, old now, but super experienced and still strong as an ox. And one of them grabs it by nose and mouth. In fact, it's just got it by the nose. But the idea is bite over nose and mouth with that incredible pressure that a lion can exert with its jaws. Bite down and shut off the air supply. If you bite it in the neck of buffalo, it's very thick, not so easy to actually uh, extinguish the life from it. Bite over nose and mouth and you are going to be able to. You'll see a lioness sometime. Literally, the effort, the buffalo, desperate, blowing out air, sucking air in, trying to, and you'll see the the lioness's nostrils just flaring. It's one of those extraordinary moments. Life for one, death for the other. Death giving life to the pride. So grabs the cow by the nose to give it a kiss of death, to completely smother the mouth and nose of the buffalo with its own mouth. Meanwhile, the rest of the pride start to eat the buffalo alive. But we don't show that. Why would we? You don't need to see that, even if you know it happens. Now, BB. Well, Angie and I have a soft spot for BB. I mean, we talk about her in the latest documentary, Lion, The Rise and Fall of the Marsh Pride. BBC, PBS, 90-minute documentary, dating back to 77 when I first start watching the Pride, all the way through with the archive of footage that the BBC has accumulated on this Pride over the years. All the different series from Africa Watch, Big Cat Diary, Truth About Lions, Dynasty, you name it, they've been there and filmed it. And we'd watched her in early 2000, before the BBC were in actually filming that summer, but earlier in 2000, when her mother, Carly, gave birth to a new letter. She had four cubs, lost one to a buffalo, horrendous, hooked a cub, threw it up in the air, tore its abdomen. And at one and a half years old in 2000, Bibi was a gentle lioness. I think that's the way I always think about um, Bibi. She was, I won't say in some ways that, that, that she was insignificant within the pride. She was part of the group, but she didn't stand out. Eventually she did because she had the tail tip, that black pom-pom missing on her tail. Don't know how, fight with another lion perhaps, who knows. But she wasn't a red which was the name that was given to Mama Lugga. Eventually, she became Red. There was a previous Red um, of a splinter group, but this was a very different Red, and she was a huge presence. There was White Eye with that blind eye, another big character. So she, uh, um, she wasn't like that, but she was gentle, and she loved to play with those little cubs as much as they did with her. She was fascinated by her younger half-brothers and sisters and would spend hours in their company, fine-tuning, we can say, her own maternal instincts in the process. In fact, Bibi didn't turn out to be a great mother in terms of her reproductive record. In general, over the lifetime of these females, 
maybe leading, living up to 14 years when menopause hits in, most lionesses by that time already dead. But in terms of their reproductive ses- success, it pretty much evens out among the lionesses. They, amongst the lionesses, they pretty much raise the same kind of number of cubs. You know, maybe half of their litter have four cubs, raise two of them, two-year interval, next litter, from the age of four through until they die. But if they don't die and they're around 14, menopause starts to kick in. The level of success in raising those cubs isn't necessarily as good, or they maybe have less cubs at that point. But she wasn't a great mother in terms of measuring her success, but she was still a doting mother. She was still gentle and loving with her own cubs. Now, in the present circumstance, even though Bibi has got it, well, I won't say she got it wrong. It's not her fault. She just wasn't, you know, being mated or at the time when those other of her contemporaries, Waitai, Mama Lugga, Nusu Nusu, had their cubs. And so, but she isn't a complete outcast. Her cubs were sired by Simba, and Simon soon discovers that Bibi is shadowing the rest of the pride. She wants to try and keep safe. Security in numbers. You know, if you're a lion, you're not a single solitary cat. You're not a leopard. You can't breed on your own the way a leopard or cheetah can. You need the security of a territory. You need backup from the other members of the pride. And it's the females who own the pride. The pride, the patch of turf, gets passed down from one generation of females to the other. And they basically will protect that territory against groups of other females because they're the consistent part of the lion's story. Males come and go. Young males are ousted, become nomads. New males come into a pride, kill cubs, stay for two, three, four, sometimes longer in terms of years, and then they're pushed out again. But the female continuity, the sisterhood, as Angie loves to put it, which fascinates her, the sisterhood continues year after year after year. But she is trying to shadow the rest of the pride, never getting too close two kilometers or so, one and a half miles, one and a quarter miles, within sight and smell of the rest of the lions. So she wants to stay in touch, even though she knows that basically she can't just walk up there, introduce the cubs and not get hostility. She's got to wait until the time is right. But she has to be careful now that those two nomadic males, one a bit bigger, one blondish, not yet completely fully grown in terms of body size, between three, three and a half years of age, and, but she has to be careful. On one occasion, Simon, the lion crew, films her standing her ground. Literally, these two males come along Bilashaka, where she traditionally, like other lions within the group, has kept her cubs. That's where she feels safe, or did initially. Eventually, she's going to want to get deeper into the pride territory, over towards the marsh. And those two males are sniffing around. We see them actually tracking Simba one time. It's an extraordinary bit of footage. Simon, anxious, conveying the emotion you, the audience, would have been feeling, you know, saying, Simba, watch out, be careful, on your back, look over your shoulder, because he's wandering along with his beautiful mane of his down a game trail within his territory. And there's these two males, heads low, stalking towards him, moving in, catching up. And then at one point he turns around and you can't believe he didn't know they were there the whole time because we can see them. But then we've got a different position in terms of the camera angle. And then suddenly he looks over his shoulder and boom, off he runs. 
and the youngsters give chase. But what's interesting is it's not quite their moment yet. They're not completely assured. If they'd been bigger and older, if they'd been those Topi Plains males, Simba and Blondie, back in the day, when they were doing exactly the same to Scar, Angie and I saw it in early 2000, when they chased him all the way up to Musiara Gate and beyond, and then roared from the top of their voices, saying to him, move on, your time is up, come back at your peril. And now the same is happening to him. And we'll see that same cycle again later with Notch, another iconic male whose partner is killed, his coalition partner, there were two of them, killed by three incoming males. He can stay for a while. Well, his story is a whole nother story. We'll get into that another time. It's a fascinating story. So, on one occasion, as I say, the film crew, she's standing her ground, fronting up to the males, because those males, as I say, they weren't quite ready. They weren't ready just to bash into. They're still not on home turf. This is not yet their territory. They hadn't at that point been marking and roaring, not to begin with when they moved in. They were incognito, checking the lie of the land before drawing attention to themselves before they knew they could handle whatever was there, i.e. Simba. And she fronts up to the males, threatening them with snarls and grunts, defying them to come closer, letting them know they're unwelcome. And for as much as those males know, there could be another five lionesses in that lugger, because they would listen and hear the roars of seven adult females, and of Simba and Kajana, That's quite a wall of sound to say, you know what, I don't care. We're coming in anyway. It's a calculated game. Lions can count and they can tell who's roaring, male, female, how many. But you could almost feel the loneliness of single females like Bibi. Lions thrive in the company of their relatives and allies and seem somehow diminished in their absence. But amid all the drama, well, there were plenty of fun moments. I mean, 2003... It really was an epic year. It was a turning point. We're into Big Cat Week. We're going to double our audience. We've got it absolutely pat. The actuality, it's absolutely as the audience is with us. And so, fun moments. But none more so than when Kike decided to use my vehicle as a latrine. Just as she would a termite mound, squatting above my head. So I had a roof hatch, which wasn't one which covered the hole from one side to the other of the roof that you flip backwards and would have exposed the sun to the driver and the passenger in the front seat. No, I had my own little sort of, you know, like a a submarine turret. I had a single roof hatch which I could reach up, flip backwards so it flipped over above that part of the roof above where my passenger Toby Strong would be, my DV cameraman. So I could pop up out of my single roof hatch and there would be a space next to me in that lid of the roof hatch where it had been put back against the roof. And now that is where Kike, it just became like an armchair to her. Jump up onto the bonnet of the car, up onto the roof, sit there and squat above my head peeing or pooing through the open roof hatch. I never imagined this would be my ultimate claim to fame, but I can always tell from the look of sheer pleasure on people's faces when they ask if I'm the bloke from the telly that the cheetah crapped on. I mean, I could be walking down Oxford Street, King's Road, somewhere in London, even one time at Machu Picchu, and 
you'll see somebody do a double take. Might be the customs man. Might be immigration. That's nice if they're going to be sidetracked by thinking, oh, hang on a minute, that's that bloke from telly. But the look, as somebody's face just bursts into this beaming great smile, I know it's not just they're going to say to you, you're the bloke from Big Cat Diary, aren't they? They are going to say to you, you're that guy that that cheetah crapped on. Oh, that was that was amazing. That We loved that. It was That was the pub moment we'd all, you know, that's what we remember from the series. But I can always tell people from the look of sheer pleasure on people's faces when they ask if I'm the bloke from the telly that the cheetah crapped on. It was amusing to begin with. But believe me, cheetah poo is very smelly. And by the time Kike had pooped down the camera bags, I have camera bags sewn into the front seat next to me. Okay, Toby would be sitting on them, but you can put a camera and lens into four or five pockets on the seat next to me. Well... On one occasion, I had my beloved Canon 500mm lens on, facing upwards, lens up, no cover on it, and she poops right down into it. Yeah. And then she peed in my eye. And much more besides. I was only too happy to close the roof hatch, finally. But I can tell you what, the problem was, the hatch needed to be opened. Well, this is what the editors said. They just enjoyed seeing what went on. They said, it's got to be open so that the sun could illuminate my face for the camera. And so it continued much to everybody's delight. I'd say to Toby, I'd see him with his camera up there, you know, right up facing Kike's backside. And he would be laughing so much he could barely hold. It was lucky that the camera was image stabilized because he was chuckling to himself so much as this stream of whatever landed and I'd have to, you know, clean myself up. And you'd get visitors who would be primed by their drivers as to what was going to be happen. I felt like, you know, a, a predator sighting. I'd be surrounded with people filming, laughing, joking, and then coming over to me and saying, hey, that was amazing. That was brilliant. Do you want to have a look? <laughs> Do I really need to at that point? And so anyway, it was a landmark moment for people who watched the series. So what about the leopards? What about Sabah and that hour's drive to the Talek? Well, one of the key things was those two little cubs, those three months old cub, a little boy, a little girl, and all kinds of different scrapes and adventures and hijinks and jeopardy. That, that, that old word of delivering drama to our audience. And you didn't have to contrive it, not with the big cats. So those two little cubs, a male, the little male maybe a little bit more inquisitive, a little bit more sort of, you know, tending to wander off than the little girl. But there were two of them. That was good. When one's on its own, it might sort of, you know, get a bit impatient and stick its head out from under a bush and bang, there's a hyena got itself a free meal. But these two little cubs, they'd play together. It was wonderful. Some of the footage that Gordon Buchanan, a wonderful cameraman presenter now, um, he just loved being with those leopards. Everybody did. Gavin Thurston did an amazing job. All of them. And so cubs and mum, and when Bella was there, the licking and grooming and suckling, and although it did make me laugh, suckling. I remember when I was writing my leopard's tale and being meticulous and sort of trying to be scientific and zoological, I would write down in my notebook every time the cub suckled and from which position. And my editor said to me, you know what, Johnny, I think probably we've heard enough of that for now. You don't need to be giving us quite so much detail. Anyway, leopard, gold, cubs, wonderful. Bella, what a star performer. Now, 
she was, as I say, on the Talic River. And at times during the dry season, when the migration is in, the wildebeest and zebra, zebra are moving into the Mara, they cross the Talic River, or they come to drink there. And Bella knew it. And she would be there, ready to ambush them, because there were thick bushes at places along where the wildebeest chose to come to drink or cross. And her favourite technique was to ambush the animals when they came down to the lugger. She knows the crossing points intimately. This is her territory. So she grew up there. She overlapped part of the area that her mother had had as a territory. And now this is hers. She's She knows it as intimately as you would your own garden. And she uses the shielding presence of the riverbank as a blind, running as smooth and silk low to the ground across the open patches. You want to see a leopard when it just goes into that creepy mode. Oh, heaven. That's so quick and agile. Every muscle in her body is poised to strike. Her head is down. Your heart is pounding. The cameraman's trying to keep his hands steady on the big lens. And then, bang, a sudden short rush, and Bella has a wildebeest calf by the throat, which will be as big as her, bigger. And she then whips it off her feet, the strength of a leopard. Look at the le- the neck of a leopard. It's like Mike Tyson. You can't Trying to fit a radio collar on a leopard is the hardest thing amongst the cats because its head runs straight into its neck you would not be able to do up the top button, for sure. And then she's pinning it to the ground. She lies there in the open, shielding herself from the stampeding. Can you imagine? There's all these other wildebeest piling around her. It's their moment. One down, but the rest of them. One's taken out, a thousand will cross. And they're stampeding behind the body of her victim. Then, guess what? She releases it and grabs another calf felling it with a flying tackle. I mean, this was, forget, oh, Sonny Boy Williams in rugby union or rugby league, just bang. The violence, and it slammed to the ground before it knows what's hit it. Sabra explains Bella's feast or famine strategy. This is more than any leopard can eat in a sensible amount of time. But she's just going to stock up while she has the chance. Sometimes in circumstances such as this, you see a leopard. I remember in Serengeti, in one of Alan Root's films, resting contentedly in a tree, surrounded by two, three, four, especially when the calves are small, in the Serengeti, where they're born during the rainy season at the beginning of the year, roundabout in Dutu, Serenera, and those calves are just, you know, feast for the leopards and the lions and the cheetahs. Anyway, not in this instance, shaken and somewhat wobbly, the first covers. Can you believe it? I mean, this is wonderful television and a great reprieve for the calf. Wobbly, the first calf recovers and totters off back to the herd. But will it be able to reunite with its mother? That's the problem, because these wildebeest, with those calves born in the Serengeti between January and March, they cling to their mother's side like a limpet. They learn the migration route. They learn their way around. It's safe to stick with the mother. Sometimes they seem as it, almost as if that beard of the mother is able is part of a construct to shield them amongst the herd from being selected as a victim. Would it find its mother? Who knows? Bella drags her latest victim to cover. Well, back to Bibi. I mean, 
you know, it was harrowing. Not only was she trying to keep her cubs fed, so she's having to hunt her on her own, often during the daytime when other lions and hyenas aren't around, hoping that she can get a kill into the bushes so as the vultures don't attract unwanted attention. But her two youngsters are receiving a somewhat brutal introduction to family life in the Marsh Pride. We don't know how this happened, but it's one of the most harrowing episodes in the series. Bibi is nowhere to be seen. Perhaps she's gone off hunting, which may be just as well, before they know what's happening. So the pride has come across these two little cubs, who until now have had contact only with their mother. That's what she would have wanted. First eight weeks, imprint on their mum, her voice, her smell, same for them. And then they know who mum is. They know where to go when there's danger. But now they're being mobbed by a dozen or more youngsters from the Pride. So you've got the year-old cubs, you've got those slightly younger ones, nine and ten, who were not notch, uh, Notch's babies, and they're being pushed and poured and prodded. They squawk, they grizzle with fear and apprehension, their teeth bared, ears flattened against their head. Nothing playful for them about this. Nothing, no, none of the solo scenario where he just enjoyed, he was a little bit older, but where he enjoyed the company being monstered by those older cubs. And it stood him and him in good stead. He became as tough as nails. Simon can hardly watch. I don't think I can bear the tension of this. If it was just a handful of cubs, we could begin to relax. But every member of the pride wants to inspect them. So even the lionesses, they're coming over, smelling them, sniffing them. Now, they will have part of the scent of Bibi and the pride females know Bibi's scent. So, for a moment, the situation looks as if it might turn ugly with the cubs killed or injured. But eventually the pride move off, leaving the cubs shaken but unharmed. And that was the benefit for Bibi of being within the pride's territory. Even as an exile, even being marginalized for a time, she still had access to her territory. So in the course of the next few days, Simon manages to track Bibi down and is overjoyed when the two cubs emerge from a hollow at the base of an enormous strangler fig known as Dave's tree. There were three trees in the centre of the marsh, huge fig trees that have got a legend of stories to them over the years. We named this particular one after Dave Breed, one of our driver guides, cameramen, camera assistants. And it's a landmark in the centre of the marsh where the crews sometimes gather for a sundowner, which we would. But that particular tree today, 20 years on, it's just a little pile of wreckage. When we filmed Big Cat Tales 2017-2019, it still acted as a den site for Kabibi, Bibi's daughter, for White Eye, and for Dada and Carly when they had their cubs. More about that another time. Anyway... Times change, another sign of, you know, the opening up of the habitat, the, how difficult it is for our females, for our lionesses to find safe places in an opening up of the environment in these global warming days. Anyway, so he finds them at the tree and we're all thoroughly relieved. Now, scent mark and calling are vitally important ways for big cats to communicate with members of their own species so for instance when we found bb's cubs or the pride found them bb wasn't there then we find them in another place she goes hunting comes back how do they know how do lions know what's going on they roam over a huge area will roaring which can carry five eight kilometers up to five miles extraordinary 
You can let somebody, another line, know where you are and not have to be there to send the message. So spatially, very economic. And of course, with scent, it's got great time value because you can pee, as the females do, and the males, against bushes or on the ground, scuff, leave a visible mark where you've peed as well by scuffing your hind, your hind feet as you pee. Those roaring and scent marking are very economic and allow these cats to avoid each other, which spaces them, which allows them to have cubs away from the rest of the pride, which allows them to meet up when they want to, to avoid danger at times from other members, from other prides. So it's, it's like the postal service. You've got a daily brief roaring in the morning as you begin to lie down and establish where you're going to be for the day. Roar in the evening as you begin to move off. You pee, you leave scent, you patrol your territory, and that's how everybody knows whose patch of turf is this, who's around, who do I want to meet, who do I want to link up with, who do I want to avoid like the plague. For the most part, cats try to avoid conflict by reading these messages and moving away from trouble. But sometimes they find themselves within view of a potential rival, as happened. And this was an extraordinary situation because we always say, Cheetah, adult females, roam, range, roam over huge home ranges, up to a thousand kilometers. And they don't try and defend it. It's too big. They simply avoid each other. They see another cheetah and they'll move away normally. So that for the most part, they try to avoid conflict by reading these messages. But sometimes they find themselves within view of a potential rival. And as happened when Kike suddenly came face to face with another female cheetah, bent on trouble. We see Kike, Kike hold her position crouched on a termite mound while her cubs take refuge from the sun under Angie's vehicle, oblivious to the drama. It's apparent that the newcomer is young and pregnant and she's intent on forcing Kike to move on. The area is swarming with Thompson's gazelles. So this other young female has probably chosen this area, has clocked it as being a great place to hunt and a great place to den. And many of these Thompson's gazelles are dropping their fawns since it started to rain. So it's September. This makes it ideal hunting territory for cheetahs. And the young female may be looking for a suitable place to have her cubs. Kike disappears behind the termite mound, then turns and yips submissively as the pregnant female bounds towards her. So this was different. Proactive, not seeing turning, moving away. Her hackles raised in a menacing manner. The young female stops when she sees Kike's cubs moving out from under Angie's vehicle, wondering what on earth's going on. Four cheetahs are more than she's bargained for. She's made her point. She turns and slinks away. In due course, the young female gives birth, though none of the cubs survive. Now, I'm almost certain that this is our first encounter with Shakira who will meet again in 2004 as unnamed mother of Duma, and again in 2008 with those five cubs, where she was the hero of the day. Anyway, for the leopard crew, life was pretty tough. So Saba was there, but as I say, she was getting incredible stuff with the cubs, amazing um, 
hunting and uh, with the wildebeest migration, daytime hunting. I mean, that's a gift with a leopard because mostly the hunting's at night. But when you've got an opportunity, cats are very opportunistic, particularly leopards. And if they can hunt during the daytime and avoid being seen and robbed of it by lions and hyenas, they'll do it. Now, like Bibi, Kiki was also a single mother. Male cheetahs mate then move on, covering as much ground as possible in their search for females. They play no part in rearing cubs. It was an extraordinary experience for me to spend time with Kike and her family week after week, getting to know her routine, to feel something of her inner being, to have a cheetah seat sitting up on the roof of my car within touching distance, knowing that as far as this gentle cat was concerned, I was safe. It allowed me to view cheetahs in a totally different way. So I was getting the insights and the experience and the images, as Angie was, to be able to write Big Cat Diary Cheetah, the book for William Collins, part of the trilogy on the big cats under the Big Cat Diary brand. But we were all very aware of the responsibility that came with this privilege. As I say, it would be just so tempting to reach up and touch her. That tail hanging down through the roof hatch. It was intriguing, but it's an absolute no. You never do that. That would break the boundary. This is a wild cheetah. The only difference is that she treats every car as a mobile termite mound. And mobile was right. Some drivers took liberties with Kike. One even began to drive off when starting his engine proved insufficient to prompt her to clamber down. At first it was exciting. His guests, his clients were all excited, taking pictures, selfies. Wasn't that incredible? We've got a cheetah on our car, but now it's time for breakfast. Attention spans short. Let's move on. Let's get another big sighting. So we saw the problems developing. And we were afraid that she might slip and injure a leg. And there were occasions when this almost happened. We're going to talk more about the repercussions of this whole thing sometime later. So this was absolutely an amazing series. We had three cats with cubs. And it was just it had everything that people wanted. You imagine now, and of course now it's routine to for people to binge watch their television. But to create an event like this, I remember going into shops when I was in England, it was being shown, and people would be saying to you, oh, you've got to tell me what happened next. And I said, but it's only on tomorrow. You don't have to wait a week. I know, but it's so exciting. Oh my goodness, you know, tell me what happened. Did BB's Cubs make it? Did Simba get chased away? Well, that's the wonder and beauty of watching these charismatic animals and of us being able to share these stories to create this extraordinary event. And it took Big Cat Diary to Big Cat Week and to a whole nother level. Now, it's interesting because there was a book written called Queen of the Mara. It was published in 2005 and there's a beautiful picture on the front, front cover image by Angie of Amber of Queen of our original orphan female. And that was written by Captain Dave Drummond, who I'd known for years and years and years. And he was an extraordinary man, had huge talents. He was an amazing rifle shot. He'd been in the Kenya police. Um, he was a wonderful tour operator. He knew how to keep his, his clients happy. He stretched the truth at times. But it was interesting because he really, in a sense, felt that Amber as he named her queen, was not only very special, but 
you could feel almost a sort of possessiveness about her story. And I think one of the things that I know and I've seen is, is that, you know, you don't want to kid yourself that you own these animals, that you own their story, that this is your patch. You'll see sometimes filmmakers who work in an area for many, many years and they become prima donnas about it being their patch and their cats or their creatures which they're following. No, this is for everybody. People would say to us sometimes, oh, don't you get so fed up with all, all the people in their vehicles, everybody else, you know, coming and getting in the way and isn't it... No, my goodness, without people visiting these areas, as much as one wants it to be controlled and environmentally friendly, and there has to be changes, we know that in the Mara, and we're hoping there may be and will be to have a more orderly experience so it doesn't become a circus, as it has and does at times. But this is for everybody, but everybody not just for some kind of, you know, entertainment, some trivia but to become and feel that you're watching in a unique experience. But anyway, Dave sent me a copy of his book. He was a good friend. He died, sadly, of leukemia. And um, so he talks about, he went in search of trying to find the story of the end of Amber or Queen, because we know we stopped filming her in the year 2000. And uh, we, she, we found her, but without cubs so we knew cubs are gold she couldn't be part of our story that year and he describes how he talks about a great friend of ours too another wonderful guide and he says neither Quebec nor i will never ever know how she died they tried to track down where she'd been team some of the Marseille said oh yes we saw your cheetah and she went over there and you know was it the jaws of the hyenas or was it the Marseille herders dogs that killed her so an old cheetah a violent end for most big cats is the norm lions, hyenas, you're going to end up in somebody else's stomach. And then he comments, when the TV presenters came to know their friendly cheetahs, i.e. Queen, Amber, Kike, were some of the five adult orphans of the Mara, they decided to give them different names, which they felt most suited their documentaries. So Petal was what he had originally called the female of the five orphans. Queen of the Mara, as she then became, known to the drivers, had already become a legend and did not take kindly to being stripped of her title and given the commoner name of Amber, which is what Simon called her for the colour of her eyes. For this dastardly crime, the Queen invoked a smelly curse on the perpetrators. She decreed by common consent that they, the presenters, would be dumped upon and defueled upon from on high by her successors, her daughter Kike, questionable, Star of the current Big Cat Diary series enacted the curse. The Queen's pride and dignity has now been avenged. Open roof hatches of the BBC Big Cat Diary vehicles are now hurriedly and firmly battened down when Kike approaches their vehicles. The moral of this true story is, give credit where credit is due. The truth of the beginning is now out. Petrol's progeny Petals progeny and their successive generations continue to bring joy and pleasure to many visitors from all over the world. They promise to return again to witness nature's amazing spectacle unfold in its daily dramas in the hearts of Kenya's wildest wilderness. Well, one thing is certain. Dave loved the Mara. He loved that cheetah. He created a legacy, a story which people have tapped into, as did Big Cat Diary, Big Cat Week. The experience, nature, the animals, it's for everybody.
Let's just celebrate this glorious place, the Masai Mara, the Serengeti, East Africa's land of the Great Migration and a kingdom of predators. And so just to end off with, just to remind everybody that, of course, we would love to hear from you. Do leave a message for us. Uh, at the end of the podcast, there's a place where you can leave your thoughts. So as we know whether you're getting from us the things that you want to hear about, because there's going to be more series of podcasts. It's not just going to be Big Cat Diary. Diary, we want to know whether you'd like us to be talking to other people, whether you'd like us to be talking about other things. Well, we won't know unless you tell us. And do remember, too, that we have a series of ebooks on wildlife photography. The first, well, the third one's about to be launched any minute now. In fact, it probably will be by the time you listen to this. So, the first three ebooks there was one for beginners guide to wildlife photography. Then we had 10 iconic images that you could hear the stories behind. Then understanding, mastering the light, understanding exposure. And then there'll be two more in that first series of five ebooks, and then plenty more coming where those have come from too. So let us know your thoughts. Enjoy our podcasts and our ebooks, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.